I am Patrick O'Mara. Welcome to Profiles on WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers and try to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Sir Hugh Strawn, distinguished writer, professor at Oxford and currently at St. Andrews University, and an outstanding describer and historian on World War I. Sir Hugh, welcome to Profiles. Thank you very much for asking me. I'd like to know a little more about someone who becomes deeply involved in war. Ah, that's the sort of question my wife asks me. Can't can't understand why anybody should be interested in war. It, I have to say, at one level, and it's not a totally flippant response. I never grew out of toy soldiers. I mean, I was born lead soldiers. Well, lead soldiers, absolutely, uh, turning to rubber actually as 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 I grew up, uh, and of course, I'm also of a generation where I was brought up surrounded by war because uh, my father's generation had served in the Second World War. So all my friends' fathers had bits of military kit, which they brought back from the war, that we played the equivalent of crops and robbers or cowboys and Indians in. And uh, that was a way, I suppose, of emulating what our fathers had been doing. Uh, And indeed, in Edinburgh, where I was brought up, you used to see the local territorial army unit would go off to to do their drills and, and exercises at the weekend. And I was brought up initially in the new town. And I remember, and I can't believe this is a figment of my imagination, tank transporters going through the middle of the new town in Edinburgh, picking up the officers of the local Yeomanry Regiment, of whom my father was one, in order to drive off to Dunbar to do their exercises. You started off playing with soldiers. However, did you know then that you wanted to specialize on the history of war? Or where did that come into your world of um, you know, thinking about things? Yeah, I, I think it, it's a sort of two-stage process. I mean, one is I did remain interested in, in, in toy soldiers uh, and in you know, the whole business of, 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 if you like, play uh, longer than most. And the other was... My parents had a a friend, a man called Nick Norman, who became master of the armories in the Tower of London, uh, whom they approached and said, we have this son who seems to be more interested than normal in these sort of things. um, And would you take him under your wing? And Nick was a truly charismatic and inspirational sort of person. And he showed me that there was serious scholarly study that could be done in this. And I was then only 13. And I think one of the things that that then happened was it sort of marked me out. I knew what I wanted to do. I didn't actually imagine it would become my career because that didn't seem to be possible. And I was still at the time weighing up other options, including the possibility of of being a soldier myself. But it did happen much earlier than than one might have expected. At rugby, uh, rugby was not a happy place in terms of pursuing a vocation. Rugby, where I went at the age of 13, is a school that, or certainly was a school then, that required you to opt in and to conform. And that meant, you know, you needed to play the appropriate games, particularly, of course, rugby football, that I had to do classics rather than history because I was deemed to be a sufficiently bright boy and bright boys did Latin and Greek. And I remember one point because I was actually writing my first article in military history and I went to see my housemaster to say, could I go to Warwick, which is not very far from rugby, in order to look at some sources. And it was a moment of extreme indulgence that he allowed me to do that. that. 
you know, now any schoolmaster would leap with joy that yes. they had a pupil who was, who was yes. uh, keen to do this. But this yeah. was, it was a very exceptional thing that I was allowed to do that. Just as it was very exceptional that I was allowed occasionally to watch the BBC Great War series, which was broadcast on mm-hmm. television in 1964. World War I. For many of us, the fragmentary memories of relatives, of stories that we heard maybe from friends. When did you first hear about World War I? My grandfather came to live with us towards the end of his life. He had been wounded in the winter of 1914-15 with the London Scottish, severely wounded, never fully recovered. He was the person who gave me boxes of toy soldiers. But he actually disapproved of my interest in military things. And indeed, one of the very last things he did was ask my mother, that's his daughter-in-law, to burn the kilt he'd been wearing when he'd been wounded uh, in France. Uh, Having kept it all those years, he then consigned it to, to the fire, despite my mother saying, don't you think Hugh would like it? So I knew he'd been a soldier in the First World War. I knew that connection. I don't think he encouraged me. I think the person who probably encouraged me most was the art master at rugby, a man called R.B. Talbot Kelly, TK, who was actually a painter of birds, but he'd been a gunner officer, Royal Artillery officer in the First World War. He was interviewed for the BBC series in 1964, which had brought it back, I think, to the forefront of his memory. And when I went to rugby, he offered to teach me to draw birds, which is what he taught my father to do. My father had been a rugby too. And I said, I want to learn how to draw soldiers. So he said, fine, I'll teach you how to draw soldiers. And he, at that point, he pulled out his own watercolors from the First World War and talked about them and said that for him, it had been the most exciting thing in his life. And I subsequently, after he died, read the letters he wrote home to his parents from the front. And that wasn't just an old man's memory. I mean, he, he wrote in those terms to his parents too. It was something which for him had been clearly a very intense and exciting experience. And as a forward observation officer, he was in the front line much more than most infantry officers. But for your grandfather, there was a symbolic wanting to burn the kilt. Absolutely. And his own brother had been killed at Luce in in 1915. So the Strawn family had suffered, certainly, in the war. It certainly tells us about World War I, doesn't it? This was an unusual war. It was the beginning of modern warfare in many ways. Absolutely. When I'm lecturing to students, I often say that if you were magically, if you were Marlborough, who was magically transported forward to the battlefield of Waterloo, he would have understood where he was and what he was doing. The the battlefield had not changed that dramatically uh, between the beginning of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century. Um, If uh, Wellington had been transported from 1815 to 1915, he wouldn't have had a clue what was going on. Um, And the shift between 1914 and 1918 is almost equally dramatic. Uh, You know, you just look at the representations of soldiers going off to war in 1914 and look at the representations of soldiers in 1918 and you get a sense of how, although seemingly static, this war is so dynamic and and the changes that occur within its conduct are, are, are so rapid. It began with enthusiasm with a lot of people heroically wanting to support Britain in the war. Yes, I think enthusiasm, um, most scholars now would would balk at the word enthusiasm. I mean, undoubtedly there were enthusiasts, Mm -hmm. typical 18, 19, 20-year-old young men with a sense of impunity, really, who are ready to go to war. 
I think what's much more striking to us today is actually something that may sound more measured, and that is simply acceptance, a realization that it was duty, that there was a necessity to go, and an acceptance of that. It, even when men were married, with children, with other responsibilities, uh, when they had passed the sort of first flush of youth, a realization that actually the country required them to go and they should go. And the war saw the introduction of new weaponry in so many ways. It was not the conventional war of the past. We saw what you've referred to, I think, as the industrialization of war. New weapons, new yeah. tactics. Yes, it's industrialization, I think, in two levels. I mean, one, one absolutely is that this war, as opposed, again, to take the last great war, which would be the war, uh, war against Napoleon in, in, in the European context, this war, you have societies which are so industrialized that they can not only use the power of the state to raise mass armies, they can equip a mass army. And that's what the armies of the French Revolution and Napoleon had struggled to do. Simply, they didn't have the industrial base. States in 1914 have the industrial base. But it's industrialized in another sense, too. And that is, and many soldiers remark on this at the time, that the rhythms of the war are not unlike the rhythms set by the factory. It's the machine that sets the right. timetable, not man. Uh, it's not quite true because, of course, dawn, dusk, you know, light, dark, the weather, nature, in other words, has a role in setting the timetable of war. But above all, the artillery bombardment sets the timetable and the shape of the battlefield. Uh, it still does that in the Second World War. But it's very striking to those in the front line how much the conduct of an attack is shaped by, by the artillery and bombardment and how if you're in defense, uh, you are static. It's not about courage in the sense in which you had imagined it to be, which would be you know, storming into the attack, going crossing no man's land. It's actually about sitting in a dugout in the trenches, feeling powerless. You know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, German literature, German accounts you know, have this expression, trommelfeuer, uh, you know, drum fire, the constant business of being un under artillery fire, and the strain that, that that puts your nerves under. It's been said that the war unleashed a flood tide of forces that we've been unable ever since to stem mm. beyond the war itself. Yes, of course. And that seems to me true. And I think one of the, there is a sort of paradox that as we get further away from the Second World War, so in some ways we get closer to the First World War. I, I, I think this is particularly true for the United States as, as, as it confronts the centenary because for the United States... The First World War is, after all, you know, a secondary consideration. That it's only now addressing the issue of whether it should have a national war memorial yeah. and where it should be uh, when it has national war memorials for all the other major wars that America has fought. One of the reasons why it can seem secondary is because the Second World War has been elevated into this caricature of itself uh, as the good war, as the war justified right. by the Holocaust, as though that's the reason the United States goes to war, which it isn't, or justified because it's a war of national self-defense because the United States is attacked at Pearl Harbor. What I think that, that eliminates is all the ambiguities surrounding the Second World War, moral and ethical which the First World War carries too. I mean, all wars carry moral ambiguities. 
And I think that as we go into the 21st century and we ask ourselves questions about when is it right to go to war, when is it right uh, to carry on fighting a war, when a war becomes protracted and casualty, level, level, casualty levels are rising, how do you end a war? How do you end a war satisfactorily so that the peace is lasting? Um, the First World War actually carries a, a great deal of purchase for us because those who were fighting it were aware of these ambiguities but still felt it was important and necessary to fight it. Um, and I think that is, that, that is extraordinarily instructive for us. Um, so it's not just that we live with the aftermath in, the t in terms of modern war, in terms of modern states, in terms of the entry of the United States to the world order, all these sorts of things which continue to carry political significance and particularly, of course, political significance in the Middle East with, with ongoing conflicts surrounding the 1919 settlement. It's also that there is an immediacy in the more general questions about war that the First World War can raise. Right. And, and actually, you mentioned the United States. And it was a very different entry, wasn't it, in terms of World War I into the war? Yes, it, it, it's, you know, we, the phrases we have today, war of necessity or war of choice, um, this is in many ways a war of choice for the United States. Though actually that phrase was used by some Britons in 1914, a Britain's entry to this yeah. war. In neither case is the state invaded. I mean, the United States is not invaded uh, in 1917, although there is a threat, obviously, through the Zoom and Telegram in Mexico. And Britain is not invaded in 1914 either, although there is a threat, I think, to the imperial imperial security, which for Britain could be seen as existential. Both countries, therefore, enter the war out of choice, but they actually make that a moral virtue. You know, we have an obligation right. to sustain an international order. And I think Woodrow Wilson in particular takes that position. You know, here is a man who I think is genuinely, I mean, in 1915, you know, a nation could be too proud to fight. Here is a man who in 1915 is r refusing to, to enter the war, but realizes by 1917 that if actually there is going to be a better world order that comes out of this, then the United States is going to have to be a participant in it. Right. Tell me some of the things that happened as a result of the war. There are many uh, approaches to the effect on women in the war. It's a controversial issue. Some people say it was inevitable that women would be participating more in the workplace. Others say because of cons conscription that this was a period in which um, the possibilities for women to become engaged outside of the home flourished. Yes, I, I think we can exaggerate the role of the First World War in giving women both political rights and, and economic opportunities. After all, most of the, in inverted commas, gains achieved by women in the First World War are not sustained. And many states, or many, some states, already have female suffrage before 1914. New Zealand, for example, does. Uh, Australia does. And if you look at the British example in relation to political rights, when the vote is given to women in 1918, it's not actually those women who've been active in the workforce. It's women aged over 30. In other words, women who, whom the government hopes uh, will behave in a conservative way to offset the expansion of male suffrage. You know, the most striking thing for Britain in 1918 is universal male suffrage. Uh, it's extraordinary Britain doesn't have it in 1914. Uh, and what is also striking, I think, is that um, the economic opportunities which the war provides are essentially in the new industries which the war creates. So munitions is, is an obvious one. Uh, large numbers of women employed in the munitions industry 
But the moment the war comes, then those women are out of work again. And the total increase across most of the European belligerents in the female workforce during the First World War uh, is remarkably small. What is really happening is that working women before 1914 who might have been in the textile industry or in domestic service are moving over to war production and then finding themselves without a job. It's a lateral shift, and they've moved into a job which has very high uh, demands in 1914-18, in uh, but whose demands collapse after the end of the war. So actually, they're, they're, they're suddenly unemployed. Going to another area related to World War I, the whole idea of propaganda, it really became an important part of the context of the war, didn't it? It, it did, and it became, it became an important part, too, of the rhetoric of the 1930s and into the to the Second World War. I mean, I, you, you, particularly Germany feels that Allied success in organizing uh, the, the, the propaganda of the Entente Paz and of the United States had been so great that it was a vital part in, in, in the victory. Um, and the corollary is German attention to propaganda in the Second World War. Um, the, and I think one of the things that's unfortunate today is we, we now have so tarnished the word propaganda um, that we cannot use it of governments. Um, and governments, therefore, talk about communications or strategic communications. Uh, what we're talking about is getting your message out from a governmental point of view. And why are we frightened about this? Uh, it, you know, we're actually responding, if you like, to to the German argument that it was somehow misused by the Allies in in, in 1914-18, and therefore also misused by the Germans in response in 1939-45 or 41-45. It's interesting because related to propaganda is the whole idea of culture, the perception of the different cultures. Mm -hmm. There's a marvelous quote that the Great War uh, turned immediately into a war of cultures with Britain and France Germany represented in different ways, mm -hmm. German barbarism, brutality, Britain representing a kind of loathsome commercialism rather than heroic approach. Yeah, yes, I mean, there, there, there is a flip side to that, which is, of, which, I mean, the German barbarism is obviously how the Allies see Germany, and British commercialism is how Germany wants to see Britain. Um, and the United States, of course, gets associated with that notion of commercialism too later in the war. But uh, one, I think, it certainly strikes allied um, writers of propaganda in, in 1914-15. And most of these allied writers in 1914-15, incidentally, are not government agencies. This is self-mobilization, particularly by academics who, who are engaging in a massive public education exercise. Uh, it, it, it's striking, I think, for us today when you think that the role of most academics is to... Uh, probably to criticise what government is doing in relation to mobilisation for war. How in 1914, most academics want to identify with what their states are doing and to explain to the public what they think their governments are doing. But what particularly struck the academics on the, the Allied side in 1914 was that Germany, the world leader in the development of universities, in the development of international scholarship, in the promotion of research... In other words, in so many ways, a civilized country, you know, the country of Wagner and Nietzsche and so on, that this country has fallen back into barbarism. 
1914, you can understand something called uncivilized war. Uh, you can understand barbarity in war because European powers as colonial powers reckon that's what they confronted in sub-Saharan Africa or, or, or in parts of Asia. Um, and what amazes them is that they're confronting it in Europe. Um, it's the German atrocities in Belgium and France. It's Austria-Hungary's behavior in, in, in Serbia. Uh, these, are, these provoke real shock um, because we thought we were beyond that. that. That's actually what Freud says. He says since in Vienna, he just says that yeah. we, we thought we had moved beyond this. But there was also mythology about the German army, wasn't there? There was both mythology and reality. I mean, the, the, the recent, most recent scholarship I mean, says that you know, Bryce's report, which was very largely directed to the United States, published in 1915 uh, on behalf of the British government, an inquiry into the Ger uh, German atrocities in Belgium, um, that for a long time was held to, held to be the result of second-hand evidence and, and very largely um, ill-founded um, to be part of the propaganda battle with neutral countries, the United States in particular. The evidence clearly now is that, you know, the ordered 5,000 to 7,000, I think it's, I can't remember the exact figures, but it's something like 7,000 Belgians are killed by the yeah. German army in 1914 and 5,000 French. Um, so there are atrocities going on. The great stories about the Kaiser uh, that one reads about, uh, in including a sort of psychoanalytical approach to his attitude to his grandmother, to Britain. Mm. Do you think much revolved around the Kaiser's personal problems in terms of the war? The Kaiser is, is an important person by dint of the office he holds. I mean, he is the supreme warlord. He is the political and, and military master of Germany. He's the only person who combines that authority together in the same way as, you know, the president of the United States is commander in chief. Uh, the question, just as the president may not ex exercise direct command, uh, the question for the Kaiser is how far he exercises direct command. And in this particular case, you have somebody who actually is inadequate in so many respects. We have many accounts of the Kaiser complaining in, in, in the First World that he's never consulted. Um, and he's, he sort of wonders how he should spend his days. On the other hand, of course, precisely because he has this constitutional authority, his failure to exercise it or the difficulty he has in exercising it leaves an enormous hole in how Germany runs the war um, with competing authorities uh, beneath the Kaiser unable to establish priority. Um, and it's perhaps typical of the whole situation that in the end, the Kaiser is asked to abdicate by his own army. Yes. Um, his, his senior officers, just as happened to the Tsar in 1917, uh, the authority of the Kaiser has come to depend on, on the army. Uh, he's lost political credibility with his own people. And in the end, the army says, well, we, can't, we have to associate ourselves with the people rather than with the, with the emperor. Talking about Germany, it might be a good moment for some music. And you've picked a German composer, Gluck. Indeed. Yes, And you've indeed. picked a wonderful piece of music, the Iphigenia in Aulis. Why did you choose that? Well, the, there are perhaps two reasons. The first is I mentioned just now at rugby that, that I, I um, had to uh, do classics rather than history. My Greek has never been very good. Uh, but the very first Euripides play I ever had to read was, was Iphigenia and Aulis. But the more important personal reason is that my wife and I both discovered this piece of music together uh, in the early days of our relationship. So it means a great deal to us together. And... We were both surprised by it and moved by it. It's, it's actually, I think, 
you know, in many ways, Gluck's operas are, are, are belong is pre-Mozartian traditional, really. But this bit of music seems to be much more sophisticated than that. I'm Patrick O'Mara, and welcome to Profiles again. Our guest today is Sir Hugh Strawn, distinguished academic and specialist on World War I. Sir Hugh, we tend to think of World War I as a conflict that seems to be based between major powers. And of course it was, but there were other aspects to it. And I think of South Africa, where I grew up, South Africa was drawn into that war. I can still see war memorials around Cape Town and other places. Australia was drawn into the war with Gallipoli uh, as a motif of a major, major disaster. So it was a global war, right, in your mind? Absolutely, it was a global war. And I think it it, it was a global war, it seems to me, for, for... Two reasons in particular, I mean, from, right from the beginning. Um, the first is a, a point you've referred to. I mean, that, that there are empires that go to war in 1914. These may be European powers going to war in 1914, but they go to war as as global empires. Britain more in inverted commas global than the rest, but France is an empire, Russia is an empire. And uh, as a result, uh, much of the rest of the world is touched by the outbreak of the war in Europe. Um, The second reason um, is that Britain is then the world's international trading center. The the, the capital uh, capital markets are focused there. Uh, The insurance and shipping industries are focused there. And if Britain is a belligerent, not a neutral, then that touches every uh, reasonably advanced economy in the world. Um, that, that, that they even states like the United States that remains neutral are affected by that. You know those two factors then actually play out in the strategy of the war because the 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 logical thing for Germany to do is to widen the war because if if, if it it's not a major colonial power it is a colonial power but not a major one. If it widens the war outside Europe, then these imperial enemies. France, Russia, and and Britain will actually find their resources not concentrated against Germany, uh, but scattered as they protect their own colonies. It's not a strategy that works out, but there is a playoff here between both sides, mm-hmm. one trying to expand the war outside Europe and one trying to, to close the war down, but it forces them both to fight outside Europe in 1914. Mm-hmm. And in, in many ways, um, Britain begins to rely on its colonial 
empire in a way, doesn't it, for some support? Uh, absolutely. I mean, Britain, you know, I, 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 one of the hardest things now in Britain is to get a generation that has no memory of empire to realize how important the empire was in 1914. Um, I, I've been involved in, in, in the new galleries in the Imperial War Museum. I chaired the committee that, that was part of that. And we were very clear that the first thing we have to say to a visitor uh, who has no prior knowledge of this war is you need to understand that we're not talking about Britain as we understand, uh, define it today, but Britain as an empire with, with global reach. And to recognize, too, that the – and you've mentioned South Africa – that those who lived in the so-called white dominions in 1914 saw themselves as having a dual identity, that mm -hmm. they, they were – in South Africa, of course, it's more complicated, as you know perfectly well, but, but British and South African, if they were British extraction, and certainly in Australia, New Zealand, and Canada – uh, that those dual identities mattered a great and deal. And the king mattered. And the king mattered, absolutely. And the king issued a declaration uh, to the empire after the outbreak of the war, thanking the empire for its support. Uh, interestingly, of course, uh, addressing uh, his subjects at a moment where Britain says it's fighting a war for democracy. Uh, but, but, but that paradox apart, this, is, uh, this notion of empire is, is extraordinarily important in terms of how Britain's going to resource the effort um, and in terms of how it validates the effort. You know, the, the fact that by 1918, that validation will look less secure, that those countries uh, that you've mentioned, Australia, uh, South Africa, good cases in point, will feel a degree of separation from Britain mm -hmm. uh, by 1918 uh, means that actually the dynamic has yeah. changed. As we talk about this, and I think of the the dominions, and I think of Britain as a major economic power. I think of Germany's motivation in terms of the war. The event of the Archduke's assassination in Sarajevo almost seems insignificant, doesn't it? It, it was a spark, but yeah. it, the enormity of what comes from it. Yes. I, when we think through the origins of the First World War, there is an extraordinary paradox, and I think this actually reflects, too, the direction of current scholarship, the recent work on the origins of the war, including what I've written myself, but, but I think more strikingly in, in the, the work that's been published in 2013-2014. There's an extraordinary paradox between a war that is essentially limited, you know, that, that Austria-Hungary wants war against Serbia only, it should be contained in the Balkans, it should be about Balkan issues. And nobody wants a major war. And what happens, which is a major war, I think the July crisis itself is crucially important in understanding that because the crisis that is only a week long, really. I mean, yeah. 23rd of July, Austria-Hungary delivers its ultimatum to Serbia. By the 28th of July, Austria-Hungary and Serbia are fighting. And by the end of the month, yeah. most European powers are in this war. And in an era of limited communication, when the turnaround in messages takes time, it's very hard to get control of this crisis. There isn't the equivalent of a Cold War hotline to try and stop this. Um, and there are at different points, different groups, different individuals who want to stop this, uh, but they simply don't have the capacity. And in some ways, they don't have the technical resources to reestablish control of the crisis. How would you contrast this with World War II? Where I would see the similarities is that 
I don't think anybody in their right mind goes into a world war. I don't think that's true in 1914. I don't think it's true in 1939. But what does happen is that separate conflicts, to use a, 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 a verb which I don't think is probably a verb, but international relations theorists would want to use, um, s- separate conflicts bandwagon on the original conflict. So, you know, a local war in the case of the Balkans in 1914 then attracts other wars, including essentially Japan's war against China, right. uh, including uh, the Ottoman Empire's uh, war to recover its own frontiers. Uh, these are nothing to do with the original conflict, but everything to do with the set of local ambitions, which aggregate. And, and there is a parallel with the Second World War. When does the Second World War really begin? If you asked an American that question, the answer would be 1941. Of course. If you ask a, a Brit that question, it's 1939. If you asked a Japanese or a Chinese that question, it would be possibly 1937, possibly earlier. And uh, you know what we're looking at is different conflicts which come together, uh, which in aggregation make a world war, but which give the lie to uh, any awareness, any sense that there is that, that, that a state consciously goes into a world war as opposed to a regional war. And I, I, for me, that's an object lesson. I mean, we you need to realize how little uh, international relations can be controlled. Uh, once you're at war, the capacity for escalation is enormous. And the business of people being killed itself justifies the perpetuation of war. I mean, I think it's the paradox that we simply in peacetime and in our conditions of relative peace that we enjoy today for all the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan or in Syria, uh, the, you know, those of us who live in, in Europe or the United States, the conditions of relative peace we enjoy today uh, mean that we fail to realize the power of that dynamic. Mm -hmm. But we also have to recognize that maybe Neville Chamberlain was wrong. Indeed, you know, there may be a moment when you have to go to war. Absolutely. When 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 war has utility. When when I was an undergraduate at Cambridge, uh, there was a historian called Maurice Cowling uh, at Peterhouse, who was a very well, a conservative who essentially, he, he resisted any political title, but conservative would be right, who essentially argued, especially in relation to the Second World War, that Britain should have stayed out, that this is the end of Britain's power because it bankrupts itself by could fighting it, this Could war. it have stayed out? No. Uh, that's and, what that, I, that, and that's really the point. Exactly yeah. so. Uh, that, that its decline would have been even greater and even faster if it had stayed right. out. I mean, there, there comes a point when you may just have to fight. And, and German atrocities vis-a-vis the Holocaust actually validates... Well, in, in retrospect, but Britain in did retro- not go. I mean, oh, no, it didn't know, go in for that. Britain did not. Britain went into war for right. traditional balance of power reasons, right. essentially. Right. A question about the British military. We have this vision of um, it's not a small republic in some obscure country, where the military perceived of as the power brokers, but in some ways they are. <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot a bit because you are a bit, uh, and I'm not sure that they are the power brokers. I mean, I think that the in we now have in Britain uh, an extraordinary attitude to civil military relations, which is not indigenous to Britain. It's imported from the United States, and it takes literally something the United States doesn't take literally. I mean, and there is a symbiotic relationship here because I think the United States is actually to to its own army. It derives from 17th century British practices, you know, the, right. in terms of constitution, the, where the constitution stands. But let, so let me begin by answering this question, not with Britain, but with the United States. If you look at the United States, 
the, the fiction and the constitutional norm is that the armed forces are subordinate to political control. And in every formal sense, that's absolutely true. And the president can can uh, uh, demand that General McChrystal goes when he when he, yes. when, when he oversteps a line in two thousand and nine. But at another level, the United States Armed Forces have extraordinary political clout. Are very well represented in terms of their capacity to lobby on the Hill and in the press. And the most effective of recent generals have been political. I don't mean political in a party political sense in terms of Republican or Democrat. I mean simply in their capacity to, to, to leverage political influence. And indeed, you know, they would not be effective field commanders or coalition commanders if they couldn't do that. And you they're know, active they, participants. Ab- absolutely. I mean, David Petraeus could not have succeeded in Iraq uh, during the course of the surge if he hadn't been able to play a political game. And this is, that is not a criticism. It's actually, it seems to me, a, 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 a strength. Now, the, the problem for Britain is that we have long had a tradition of generals who've behaved politically and have seen it as in part and parcel of our constitution. And indeed, the army was, extra, you know, the regular army was extraordinarily represent, well represented in parliament um, until uh, very recently. But we have now assumed that generals should be silent. And there is no clear uh, historical precedent for this. We have no written constitution that says that. And we are in a situation where we have, uh, it seems to me, an extraordinarily unsatisfactory and undefined civil military relationship, which means that uh, if a general says something the government likes, then that's all right. If a general says something the government doesn't like, then that's a major constitutional crisis. And actually, we need to normalize this. You know, if, if we are a sophisticated democracy, uh, as I hope we are, um, then we need generals to be able to speak so that they are part of a quite normal debate about how strategy should, should be conducted. And this matters in democracies because we are now, and I say we, you know, embracing the United States as well as the United Kingdom, we're in a situation where our heads of state, president or the prime minister, will refer to uh, gov- to public opinion, what the public wants. You know, does the public expect the troops to be out of Afghanistan by a certain date or not? Um, and that determines how the president behaves. But the public is not actually being given a chance even to think through what the options are because they're not being presented in any coherent way. Um, and it's not to say the military is necessarily right, uh, but it's very striking to me in relation both to Iraq and Afghanistan um, that timetables were set which bore no relationship to the situation on the ground or to the fact that to some extent we'd entered into uh, a set of obligations both to the Iraqi people and to the Afghan people which were never presented in, in, in public national no, debates. obviously not, yeah. And of course, you've you've been a little critical of President Obama in terms of strategies. Yes, I have been, and but I mean, I think I've also been quoted out of context on that. I mean, I was talking quite specifically about Syria, actually, in 2013, and the you know the red line issue, and in particular, uh, the notion that if you if you threaten, uh, you cannot withdraw from that threat without undermining your own deterrent yeah, capability. Exactly. I think the United States is weakened by that. But it is part and parcel of, you know, it took the president an enormously long time to resolve 
uh, the strategy for Afghanistan in 2009. And when he did so, at the very last moment, of course, he inserted this timetable, which was uh, set independently of what effects were being achieved on the ground. I I mean, I find that incomprehensible um, in terms of the United States trying to achieve a strategic effect. Well, you highlight a major issue that is still being debated and discussed, and I think it's an important point. We're at a point for some more music. Right. You've chosen Bob Dylan. Well, I've chosen Bob Dylan because in many ways I'm a very atypical child of the 60s. I went up to university in 1968, the year of revolutions. Many of my contemporaries as undergraduates uh, maintained they'd been on the barricades in Paris in May, May uh, 68. I don't think any of them were genuine soissons uh, But I was never particularly caught up with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, although all my contemporaries were, and you had to choose where your loyalties lay. But I was caught up by Bob Dylan. And of course, that represents protest of a sort as well in the 60s. Uh, but he seemed to me to be somebody who both captured where many of us were politically in the 60s, uh, but also captured the poetry and perhaps the romance of being you know, a teenager. the tambourine man play a song for me I'm not sleepy and there is no place I'm going to Hey Mr. Tambourine man play a song for me In the jingle jangle morning I'll come following you Though I know that evening's empire has returned into sand Vanished from my hand Left me blindly here to stand But still not sleeping My weariness amazes me I am branded on my feet I have no one to meet And the ancient empty streets Too dead for dreaming I'm Patrick O'Mara. Welcome again to Profiles on WFIU. Our guest today is Sir Hugh Strawn, who is a distinguished specialist on World War I. So you, I've been reading a, a, a great book of yours, which I've enjoyed very much, on Karl von Clausewitz, the great theoretician, of course, of war and warfare. The assumption was that von Clausewitz might have been passé, but you changed that because there's a wonderful quote of yours where you say the assumption that globalization, particularly through the Internet, it was going to change the notion of, of, of the state and the power of the state. I'd like to connect von Clausewitz and the notion of the state and war to the idea of terrorism because I think we have to make that connection. Terrorism dominates our thinking in so many ways. We tend to think of it as idiosyncratic, but I don't think it always is. It's the state that first uses terror. I mean, it's the French revolutionary state that consciously adopts terror in 1793 as a way of coercing its own population and making sure that it conforms to the revolution and, and uses terror in the counter-revolution. And Clausewitz himself was very aware of that. I mean, he talks before 1812 about the, the need for a Prussian national rising against French occupation, um, a genuine insurgency. And he says, you know, we may well need to use terror and it will be awful. 
But that's not our fault, he says, because it's the fault of the French that, that require it of us, that we, if we're to resist French domination, we will need to use terror. And I think what that brings out is a point that the global war on terror uh, sort of collapsed or avoided, which is, uh, and it's a point being made by many other commentators, which is that terror and terrorism are, are means, they're not ends. You may use terror to create the ends you want or create the opportunity for the ends that you want. Uh, But, you know, as many people said when President Bush uh, talked about the global war on terror, how can you have a global war on on, on terror? You can have a you can fight a war against Al Qaeda. Yes, because that 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 may be using terror. Um, But actually, it was an extraordinary misuse, it seems to be, of rhetoric, because what it has justified has been other regimes that you wouldn't necessarily wish to identify with saying, oh, we're doing this. We're suppressing movements that we would perhaps support uh, or feel sympathy for because they're using terror, because we're part of the global war on terror. It creates frightful bedfellows for you if you don't watch out. It's an interesting point because in so many ways, whether we're looking at ISIS or al-Qaeda, even al-Qaeda wants to introduce a new order based on new precepts. And ISIS calls itself a state. So in many ways, we are dealing with the concept of the state, whether coherent or not at this point. Yes, I, I think the demise of the state is, is uh, radically uh, overstated, um, if we could use state in different senses. And the, the aspiration to create states, I mean, ethnic and religious groups want to create states. Uh, they're not out to destroy states. Uh, and as you rightly say, ISIS is a, is, is a classic illustration of that in this blend of secular and spiritual right. or religious in terms of what it wishes to do. It wishes to control territory you know, by virtue of, of, of uh, declaring a caliphate. It's assuming a degree of secular responsibility right. as well as spiritual responsibility. But the very notion of the conflict changes. The moment of terror is not the moment of the armies clashing. Well, armies will use terror. I mean, right. It, oh, no, I agree with that. Uh, you know, strategic yeah. bombing uses terror. Yeah. Um, so and, uh, you know, what is it that, that there is? It seems to be a distinction between ISIS and Al Qaeda in this and in that Al Qaeda is a global network. I mean, you know, many people made that point and is interested in projecting power beyond, if you like, its own geographical limitations. Um, ISIS has no such aspiration. It's extraordinary how we've we, we've sort of magnified it. Um, the debate in Britain is, is in many ways quite absurd, which is this concern about the radicalization of young Muslims who are going to right. uh, Syria or to northern Iraq to join ISIS, as though that is a domestic threat to the United Kingdom. It's not a domestic threat to the United Kingdom. These people are burning our passports. Uh, they want to go. They have no intention of coming back. Uh, they may come back to bite us, uh, but at the moment, that's not the problem. The problem, actually, is how do you defeat ISIS in its own locale and how do you contain exactly, it within exactly, its own locale? Exactly. So, Hugh, we're coming almost to the end of our very interesting discussion. What's the value of history of war in the end? Two answers to that question. The first is that I'm not for a moment one of those who believes that history teaches us lessons. But I think it teaches us wisdom. I think it teaches us an understanding. This is a very Clausewitzian point, actually. And that if we don't have the context, uh, then our own immediate experiences tend to overwhelm us, tend to swamp us. We lack context. Anybody who serves in a war quite naturally prioritizes his or her own experience, let's say, in Afghanistan. 
where does Afghanistan fit in the wider scheme of things? History is almost the only tool we have, it seems to me, to make sense of that. The second point is a point Mark Bloch, the great analyst and French historian, made, which is that history, in particular the history of war, is about understanding change, not about understanding continuity. Too often when people say, well, history is of no use in understanding war, it's, it's on the assumption that it'll be about old lessons and about the past, about continuities. I would argue um, that actually war is an agent for change. It's much less the continuation of policy than a break in policy, especially for democratic states. It's revolutionary in its effects. And so in terms of the centenary, you do say if we can use this, this war, to understand war better, we've accomplished something. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and that, I think, is the great opportunity a protracted centenary gives us to engage in the process of understanding. I've been speaking today with Sir Hugh Strawn. Thank you, Sir Hugh, for being with us. This is Patrick O'Mara for Profiles. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. Profiles.